This subject, the subject of the conference is Biblical Sexual Ethics. And in order to cover this topic, we will first deal with what the Bible says that sexual um, manifestation or sexual activity where it should occur and then where it should not occur. Why, where it should occur and why, and then why in other places or in other circumstances, in sinful circumstances, that it is indeed sin. Those will be the two main things we'll cover. The first session will be on what the Bible actually says is the proper place for sexual intercourse. And then the next sessions tonight and the, the next two days will be on the deviations or the sins that are often committed. And we will cover the sins or the deviations for three nights because there is so much of it and there needs to be so much convincing otherwise. People need to be convinced that their way or man's way is sinful and God's way is righteous and good and beneficial for all of us. That's why we will spend a lot of time on the sins or the deviations. Now, before we get into what the Bible actually says about marriage and sexual relationships, we have to have two preliminaries. The first preliminary is that whatever man says, whatever the world says, whatever the world, the flesh, and the devil say about this subject is often uh, bandied about, it's often through a megaphone, it's often through bombardment that we hear what the world says. And what the world says is not squarely fixed on the Bible. We have to come to this understanding that whatever is in the Bible needs to be examined and understood correctly so that we can evaluate what's out there in the world. Because the world will militate and contradict what's in the Bible. We have to be first convinced that whatever's in the Bible is righteous, whatever is in the Bible is true, whatever is in the Bible is godly and good and beneficial for us and for our posterity, whatever is in the Bible. Jesus said, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. The words that we are going to examine are the words of Jesus, not just the red letters of the New Testament, but the whole Bible, according to 1 Peter 1, 10 and 11, the whole Bible, according to 2 Peter 3, 1 and 2, is from Christ, the whole Bible, and from the Spirit of Christ specifically, who moved upon the authors, that is, the holy prophets and the holy apostles, to write the words of Scripture. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 to 21, and 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 2, and 14 to 18, clearly make this statement. The words of Christ entail all these. Let's go to these passages to prove the point. The first one is in 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. The apostle says, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiry, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them. There we have the Spirit of Christ within the prophets, the prophets of the Old Testament, was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Then, 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts." Know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. 
The Apostle Peter recounts what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration when he, Peter, James, and John were there with the Lord Jesus, and then Moses and Elijah miraculously appeared. They're confirming that they were predicting the sufferings of Christ and the, and the glories to follow of Christ. And they're also confirming and vindicating that they were true prophets of God because they are there alongside the Lord Jesus. And he says here that the majestic glory, God the Father said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, giving Jesus Christ a further vindication that his message is from God above. Not man-made message, not his own invented religion, but from God the Father from heaven. And it was given to the apostles, including Peter, to assure them that the prophetic word, the word of the Old Testament, is sure, it's reliable, it's true. And, verse 20, no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. None of the prophets prophesied what was in their own imagination. They did not invent anything from their own nature. They were not religious originalists or even religious fanatics. They were not like that. They spoke, as it says in verse 21, as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, they spoke from God. That's the Old Testament, but also the New Testament. 2 Peter chapter 3, 2 Peter 3, verses 1 and 2. This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder, that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. There we have Peter reminding the readers of this letter, that is also us, from, all, from that generation to all subsequent generations, we should know what the holy prophet said and what the apostles said because they spoke the commandment of the Lord and Savior. Our Lord and Savior, they preached and they wrote those words of our Lord and Savior. Then chapter 3, 2 Peter 3, verses 14 to 18. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord to be salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures, to their own destruction. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, lest... Being carried away by the error of unprincipled men, you fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. The Apostle Peter commends and recommends the Apostle Paul, calling him our beloved brother Paul, and saying, wisdom given him wrote to you. Wisdom from God given to him, and he wrote to the people of God. And what Paul wrote, just as what Peter writes, and the rest of the scriptures, verse 16, the rest of the scriptures, that is, Paul, Peter, and the rest of the scriptures, that is, the Old Testament, all of these are scriptures. That's why he says the rest of the scriptures. Paul and Peter, and then add the rest of the scriptures, the Old Testament, all of these are considered scriptures. Then we note that if we deviate from the Bible, this is the second point, if we deviate from the Bible, if we contradict the Bible, if we undermine the word of God, we do so to our own destruction. We do so to our own destruction. It is a matter of life and death. Amen. What we study for this conference is a matter of life and death. If you want eternal life, you better know what the Bible says about this. But if you don't care for eternal life, and it doesn't matter to you if you go to eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power, if you want to be in the lake of fire, where there is fire and torment day and night, and darkness forever, and smoke that goes up forever, if this is the place you want to go, then don't follow what the Bible says. Don't listen to the Bible. Just forget it. Just walk away and give it up. In fact, tear up your Bible, throw it into the fire, walk away, walk away from church and go do your own thing. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we may die. 
That's the way the Bible looks at it. It's a matter of life and death. And if you care for yourself enough, if you love yourself, you love your soul, you care for your own well-being and the well-being of your children and grandchildren, you will find out what the Bible says so that you not face the wrath of God, the judgment of God, eternal death, because you have deviated, sinned against God without repentance. You have sinned against God in this regard. Then eternal death awaits. The, the Apostle Peter said so. He says, to their own destruction. To their own destruction. And in 2 Peter chapter 2, the whole chapter practically is devoted to talking about the many, many ways in which we sin against God, especially sexual sin. 2 Peter chapter 2. Practically, the whole chapter is devoted to address that sin. Sexual sin. And he says, people deviate from that and they do so to their own destruction. James says in James 2.10, he who keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. He has become guilty of all. If we stumble in this one point on sexual sin on, and sexual righteousness, purity and impurity, if we stumble on this one point, we have become guilty of transgressing the law of God and death awaits us. We are guilty of it all and we are condemned to hell. Now, explicitly, there are passages that speak to this issue that there is no inheritance for those who practice such things. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. None of these people shall inherit the kingdom of God. And this is not an exhaustive list of the various kinds of sins or even the various kinds of sexual sins. It is a sample list. That's the way the vice lists or the sin lists are in the Bible. They are here in 1 Corinthians. They are, they are in Ephesians 5, 1 to 5. They are in Galatians 5, 16 to 26. They are in various other places in the Bible. There are sin lists and there are saint lists. There are vice lists and there are virtue lists in the Bible. And here, just to give a sampling of the kinds of sins, he mentions these sexual sins. Fornication, adultery, effeminacy, and homosexuality. Just to name a few of the sexual sins. And what does he say? These people who practice these sins are unrighteous and shall not inherit the kingdom of God. He says that twice in verses 9 and 10. Shall not inherit the kingdom of God. That equates to no salvation, no eternal life, no forgiveness of sins. Shall not inherit the kingdom of God. We cannot say we are a child of God, adopted into his family, because here he says there's no inheritance for us. The people who do not receive an inheritance are not the true sons of the family. Not the true sons. They claim to be sons, but they're not the true sons. Here he clearly states that those who practice such things have eternal death that awaits them. No kingdom of God, but only the kingdom of Satan awaits them. Then, one more point uh, to make in re reference to the consequences. We have spoken of the penalty, but we should also speak of the possibility of repentance and forgiveness. Repentance and forgiveness. Repentance and forgiveness are also held out to us in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11. Notice what he says. 1 Corinthians 6, 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Some of the Corinthians practiced those sins, he says. Such were some of you. 
You were washed. These Corinthians, who used to practice these, they were washed from those sins. They were sanctified from those sins. They were justified from all those sins. In Christ and in the Holy Spirit. They overcame because they turned to God from idols and immorality to worship a true and living God. They repented of those sins. This is the key. The key to forgiveness is not cheap grace. The key to forgiveness is repentance. The scriptures say clearly that we must repent of these sins to be forgiven of these sins. Forgiveness isn't automatic. It's not unconditional. And it will not last forever. Forgiveness in the Bible is not that way. It hinges on repentance, turning from the sin, acknowledging that it is sin, that it is an affront to our holy and righteous God, and we must turn away from it and turn to Christ. Turn away from sin and turn to Christ. Mark 1, 14 and 15, Jesus preached repentance. Mark 1, 14, Jesus preaches repentance and faith. He says, And after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. He calls it here the gospel of God and the kingdom of God. These are synonyms of the same thing. If we want life, if we want eternal life, if we want salvation and forgiveness, then we must repent and believe in the gospel. It does not do to say, well, I am a Christian. I do believe the gospel and then not repent of sin and not believe in the gospel in the true way, in the way that the Bible commands us and expects us to believe in this gospel. Matthew chapter 21, Matthew 21, we have an example of sexual sin that is forgiven. Sexual sin that is forgiven. And we'll see how. Matthew chapter 21 and verses 28 to 32. Matthew 21, 28 to 32. Before I read this passage, I have in my hands the 1975 New American Standard Bible. The 1995 has changed the order of these two sons. This is the parable of the two sons. And most of your translations will be like the 1995 New American Standard. So when I read it, it will be just the opposite of what is likely in your own hands. Don't let that confuse you. The point of all of this is verses 31 and 32. Okay, the bottom line is 31 and 32. Verse 28. But what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in the vineyard. And he answered and said, I will, sir. And he did not go. And he came to the second and said the same thing. But he answered and said, I will not. Yet he afterward regretted it and went. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, The latter. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that the tax collectors and harlots, that is prostitutes, will get into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and harlots did believe him, and you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterward so as to believe him. There he says, that the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious authorities, those who should know better, those who were smug in their, in their religiosity, proud in their own righteousness, they would not repent of sins. However, the tax collectors and the harlots, practicing sexual sin, they did repent upon the preaching of John the Baptist when he said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They repented. They felt remorse. They felt remorse. They regretted it. But those who thought that they knew better and were above all that, they thought they had no need of repentance. How will we be? Will we be as those who repent and enter the kingdom of God? Or like the scribes and the Pharisees who say there's no need of repentance? How will we be? 
And we do know from elsewhere, such as Luke chapter 16, that the scribes and the Pharisees, they did practice adultery. They did love money, and they wouldn't repent of it. They wouldn't repent. Therefore, no kingdom of God for them. And lastly, Matthew, or Luke 24, Luke 24, 46, 24, 46, and 47. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Here we see what Jesus says is the gospel. He says that Christ should suffer, rise again on the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. If we make a claim to the gospel of Christ, we have to repent of our sins to be forgiven of sins. Just because the gospel's preached, or just because you raise your hand, or say, I do, or I will, I'm a Christian, it doesn't help. You have to actually do this repentance, this true turning away from sin, to be forgiven of that sin, and believe in Jesus Christ to be justified by faith. We know in the Bible, Hebrews 11.31 and James 2.25, Hebrews 11.31 and James 2.25, that Rahab the harlot believed and was forgiven. She's still called, even after her conversion, Rahab the harlot. Why? Not to demean her, but to show the grace of God, that those who repent like Rahab did, they can be forgiven and will be forgiven. To read about Rahab the harlot, Joshua chapter 2. Joshua chapter 2 explains her notorious background and also her faith. Remember, too, that there was the woman of Samaria. Lest we say, no, it only is in the Old Testament that people repent. No. In John chapter 4, the whole chapter almost, verses 1 to 42. John 4, 1 to 42 we have this incident of the Samaritan woman. The Samaritan woman, according to Jesus, he said, I know that you do not have a husband, and the man that you now have is not your husband, for you have had five husbands, and the man that you now have is not your husband. Well, eventually she repents, and she believes, and she goes and tells all the people of her town about Christ. So there is another example of sexual sin, Confronted, she's made aware of it by Christ. She repents and believes, and then goes and tells everybody else about it. One last point, and that is will you take up the challenge to make sure that what you hear is in the Bible? Make sure that it is in the Bible, and when you are convinced, when you are convicted that it is in the Bible, believe it wholeheartedly, and proclaim it faithfully wherever you go. First, be convinced that what we are learning is that, in fact, in the Bible, and then from that, repent of whatever sins in your life, and call your friends, your relatives, your co-workers, whoever they are, to repent of sin in their life, so that they can be forgiven and receive eternal life. Why do we say so? Acts 17, Acts 17 Verse 11, Acts 17, 11. Now these were no, more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. These people in Berea are compared to the Thessalonians, and they're called more noble-minded, more honorable, more respectable people, because they received the word with great eagerness. What Paul and Silas preached to them from the Bible, they double-checked it and they received it with great eagerness, not with skepticism, not with a superiority complex, but they received it with great eagerness, humbly, teachably, they received it, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. They said, I want to find out what the Bible says about whatever is being preached. I want to find out, I want to know, because I want it for my own life and for my loved ones. I love them enough to tell them what I learn 
from the Bible. Once I am convinced, once I am convicted, then I will confess it openly before men, no matter who they are. And I will do so because I love them. James chapter 5, 19 and 20. The last two verses of James. James 5, 19. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. If anyone strays from the truth and one, one of you, somebody who does know the truth, turns him back, how will you turn him back? You'll make him aware. You'll show him what's in the Bible. And you will say, if you consider your relationship to God seriously, if you will consider what the Bible teaches on this subject and how it relates to your own life, this is how we inform them. And when we do inform them, and they do repent and believe, when we turn a sinner from the error of his way, we save his soul from death. Now we're back to the point made earlier that this is a matter of life and death. But if you love yourself and you love others enough, you'll tell them the truth of God and save their souls from death and cover a multitude of sins. Yes, a multitude of sins can be covered on the basis of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, to believe that he died on the cross for our sins. All right, well, those are a few words of introduction. Now, let's see what the Bible says about the proper place for sexual intercourse, a proper place where sexual activity should take place. We learn from Genesis chapter 1 that it takes place only in marriage. Only in marriage between a man and his wife. Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Only humans, male and female, both of them, not just male and not just female, male and female among mankind, they are endowed with the image of God. And he says to them, the male and the female, in verse 28, he blesses them, and he says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Well, how does that take place? How does reproduction take, take place? It takes place through sexual intercourse. And this verse implies that they are married. We will see in a moment that they are married, and that's the only way that this takes place. And we also see from verse 28 that it is a blessing to partake in sexual intercourse and reproduction. It is a blessing, not a curse. Away with feminism, away with the world and the culture of the world that says that children are a burden and children are a curse. And that you have to control, you have to control pregnancy by birth control and medicine. I thought medicine was for people who had a disease. We should not treat it as a disease. It's not a disease, it's a blessing from God. Genesis chapter 2. 2, 18 to 25. Here we will see where marriage takes place. Genesis 2, 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. And out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam... There was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. 
And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this cause a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This incident occurs on the sixth day of creation before sin enters into the world. And before sin enters into the world, God has already created the animals and he has created the man, Adam, as he is named in verse 20. But he has not on the sixth day yet created the woman. But he, what does he do to make the man realize that the woman is his companion? The woman is the helper suitable to him. The woman is his life partner. The woman is his spouse. He brings all the animals in front of him so that he names them. And it says very clearly in verse 20, But for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. It's not only for Adam's sake that Adam had to come to a realization that he needed a woman among humans. He needed a woman, not an animal, not the trees and not the rocks. Speaking of deviations that happen today, sinful deviations. People do that. They say they are going to marry an animal, their dog or their horse or their dolphin. They do that today. There are people who say they're going to marry a tree. There are people who say they're going to marry the rocks. They're going to marry the earth. Whatever that means, that's what they believe. And even they say they will marry themselves. It's called sologamy, S-O-L-O-G-A-M-Y. Sologamy, like soul or solo they're going to marry themselves. I'm going to marry myself and have a wedding ceremony. This is what they say. But in this case, the Bible is saying no to all that. The Bible is saying that there is among all of creation, no one, nothing even, suitable for Adam, the man, but for the woman. And verses 24 and 25, For this cause, or for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. They become one flesh when they leave father and mother and are brought together. We see that in verse 22, verse 22, And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. He the Lord brought the woman to the man so that they would be married and be fixed in marriage because they would be one flesh. That is speaking, speaking of in a metaphorical and in, in a spiritual sense that they would come together as husband and wife and become one flesh until death. This is what Jesus meant also in Matthew 19, 3 to 12. In Matthew 19, 3 to 12, Jesus explained that what God has put together, let no man separate or divorce. This is the way it was established from the very beginning between man and woman. But someone may say, well, that was when everything was perfect. Now that there's evil in the world, now that there's sin in the world, it's not the same thing. We can't make that argument. Not at all. Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. This is after the flood and after sin has entered the world. After the flood and after sin has entered the world, God repeats this command with a blessing. Genesis 9, 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And verse 7, Genesis 9, 7. And as for you, be fruitful and multiply. Populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. Populate it abundantly and multiply in it. Here it's for Noah and his sons. He did not mean only his immediate sons. We know he did not mean that because he gives the sign of the rainbow as a promise that he will not destroy the whole world with a flood again. So this means that that sign is not only for Noah and his three sons to remember that God did destroy the earth and that he will not do it again, but it's for all of us. So if that is for all of us, so are the other things he has said 
in this chapter. They're for all of us to understand and to practice. As well, we will not have time to go to these passages, but for the sake of further study, consult Psalms 112 and 13, 112 and 13, 127 to 128, where we also find that marriage and children through sexual intercourse, that this is a blessing from God. This is the way that God blesses us. Now, we have to anticipate those who say, well, that's in the Old Testament. People like to make excuses by saying and dismissing it that way. Well, that was in the Old Testament. It doesn't apply. Let's go to the New Testament, therefore. 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. He gives instructions first to the men and then to the women in chapter 2. In the middle of the chapter, he addresses the men and then the women. Notice what he says is the outworking, the demonstration of a godly woman. 1 Timothy 2.15 But women shall be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. 1 Timothy 2.15 Women shall be preserved through the bearing of children. This is one of the indications of the woman's godliness. She's doing the will of God. Another example is 1 Timothy chapter 5. After giving instructions and admonitions toward younger widows because they were living an ungodly life, younger widows were not remarrying but living an ungodly life, this is what he instructs them to do. 1 Timothy 5.14 Therefore I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach. For some have already turned aside to follow Satan. Here, these younger widows who are refusing to do their God-given responsibilities, that is, to marry a man, to marry a husband, and then to bear children keep house and give the enemy no occasion for reproach. They're not doing that. He's exhorting them and admonishing them to do that because if they don't do that, they are followers of Satan. Did you see that? 1 Timothy 5.15 For some have already turned aside to follow Satan. No Satan follower is pleasing to God. We may say that people who don't do this are Satanists. They love Satan. They follow Satan. Yeah, they don't go to the church of Satan, but they are Satanists in this sense. They follow the devil. One more place in the New Testament, Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, verses 3 to 5. Titus 2, 3 to 5. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be dishonored. Here also, the older women are to teach the younger women to love their husbands. This assumes that they married a man and they, that they should have children when they marry so they love their children. They have children and they love their children by caring for them and so forth. Clearly then, even the New Testament expects us to have sexual intercourse in marriage for the sake of godliness in marriage and for the sake of bearing children in marriage and raising them up in marriage. What else should take place in the marriage relationship? 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 to 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 to 5. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, 
but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again, lest Satan tempt you because of your lack of self-control. The apostle addresses some of the questions of the Corinthians, he says in verse 1. And he says it's good for a man not to touch a woman. Not to touch a woman meaning to, to even consider being single, but immediately here, not to practice immorality. Don't touch a woman to practice immorality, verse 2. But because of immoralities, because this is so common, let each man have his own wife. Each man his own wife. And let each woman have her own husband. Let them belong to each other and to no one else. In what sense does he mean it? In the immediate context, he's talking about the sexual relationship. He says in verse 3, Let the husband fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. It is a reciprocal relationship. The husband has a duty to his wife, and the wife has a duty to her husband. It's not merely the husband's duty, and it's not merely the wife's duty. And by this, he's not talking about drudgery. He's not talking about a burden. He's talking about responsibility. We say, uh, for example, uh, military men and police officers, they are on duty. That means they are working, they're doing their responsibility. They're doing what they have agreed to do, they're doing what they are called to do, their calling in life, their vocation in life, they're doing that, they're on duty. In the same way, when we have entered this marital relationship, then it becomes the duty of the husband to fulfill his wife and the duty of the wife to fulfill her husband. It goes both ways. In fact, verse 4, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. We cannot say when we are married, no, this is my body, don't touch me, leave it alone. And then, whether we're husband or wife, neither of us can say that. When our spouse, when our partner desires to have sexual intercourse, we ought not to fend off and stiff arm our partner. We should say, okay, my body does not belong to me, it belongs to my wife. Or the wife should say, my body does not belong to me, to me it belongs to my husband. This is the only place where this proper relationship can take place. Amen. So why deprive one another? He says, in fact, in verse 5, stop depriving one another. Don't do that. Do not deprive each other, except by agreement for a time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. He says, except by agreement, not by a unilateral ultimatum, but by agreement. Agreement. You have to consult one another and consider one another's needs. And when there is agreement, it can only be on this basis, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. If you're going to devote yourselves to prayer, not because you just don't feel like it, not because you're angry, not because you're bitter, not because you are going through this or that circumstance. It doesn't say that. It says that you may devote yourselves to prayer. To prayer. Both of you pray for a time, but it should not be a long time. Notice he says, and come together again, lest Satan tempt you because of your lack of self-control. When spouses are withheld for too long, they have thoughts, they have feelings, they have desires that are unfulfilled, unsatisfied. And then their minds wander, their thoughts wander, their lips wander, and their actions wander. And they commit sins, many and varied sins, that are destructive to the marital relationship. That should not happen, because we all do not have enough self-control. We all need boundaries. We all need a way, a vehicle, a means to fulfill our desires. We have a desire for food and drink, do we not? How long can we last without water? We give it and we grant it to one another readily, easily. 
with food and water. So why not do so with this? This is natural, it's God-given, and it's meant to be manifested and satisfied in the marital relationship. That's what he's saying here. He's describing it as such. Now, you may say, well, I, I don't, I don't love my spouse, or I don't love him or her to the extent in, in which the Bible is expecting this. Well, there's a scripture for that. Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians 5, 28. Ephesians 5, 28. For further study, the passage to study would be verses 22 to 33. 22 to 33. And in the middle of this passage, notice these terms of the Apostle Paul. Ephesians 5, 28. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. And verse 30, because we are members of his body. Does Christ withhold good things from us? No. So, in the same way, there should not be withholding of anything in the marital relationship. As well, in verse 28, he says, Husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. Why does he say as their own bodies? Does that remind you of a verse? Look at verse 31. For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. From Genesis 2.24, the two become one flesh. In this sense, now in marriage, the husband and the wife, in this way, and in many other ways, spiritually speaking, they are one flesh when they come together. So if they are one flesh, the way the husband treats his wife, he's treating his own body. He's treating himself. Or the way the wife treats her husband, she's actually treating herself that way. So if the wife, for example, withholds from her husband, then she is spiteful and unloving towards her own self. That's the implication of this verse. And we are in danger of breaking the second greatest commandment. Amen. Notice he says in verse 28, he who loves his own wife loves himself. The Apostle Paul has applied the second greatest commandment from Leviticus 19.18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus called it the second greatest commandment in Matthew 22, 34-40. He called it the second greatest commandment. He announces the first greatest to love God and the second greatest to love our neighbor as ourself. So who would be our closest neighbor? Husband? Your wife. Wife? Your husband. And then it goes from there. But the inner circle is first husband and wife. This is why he says, he who loves his own wife loves himself. He applies that commandment to ourselves. And 1 John, 1 John chapter 4, 1 John chapter 4, 20 to 21. Someone may say that they do love God, they just don't love their spouse. Someone may say that. Many people do say that. People say that about people in the church, others in the church. It's easy to love God, but it's hard to love these people in the church. They're all hypocrites. Actually, the pe person who always says hypocrite, hypocrite about other people is the biggest hypocrite I found. So, 1 John 4, 20. 1 John 4, 20. Can we say we love God, but not our neighbor? 1 John 4, 20. If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother... He is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. The Apostle John now says that we cannot say we love God and hate our brother. And you say, no, no, I don't hate. Well, if you don't love, then you hate. Because he says... The one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. 
If we're not actively loving our brother, then we are hating our brother, whether we admit it or not. We actually hate our brother. So we ought to love God by loving our brother. The way we show our love for the invisible, unseen God is by loving the visible, tangible, physical person right next to us. That's what the Apostle John says. This commandment we have heard from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. If there is going to be any consistency, anybody making a claim to loving God, it will show in loving one's neighbor as himself. The Bible is very clear that this is the way and this is the context in which this relationship should take place, where true love should be manifested. But someone may say, it's not my responsibility, it's my spouse's responsibility. Let's see, Luke chapter 17, Luke 17, verses 1 and 2. Luke 17, 1 and 2. Supposing the wife withholds from the husband and says, no, it's his deal. He desires it too much, too often, whatever, and it's his problem, it's not my problem, and I have nothing to do with his sin. If he commits sin, then it's on him. It's on his head, it's not on my head, it's on my husband's head. That's not the way sin works. Luke 17, verse 1. And he said to his disciples, It is inevitable that stumbling blocks should come. But woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to stumble. Notice there. It is a tragedy and a judgment, a curse on the one who commits stumbling blocks. Inevitable that stumbling blocks should come, but woe to him through whom they come. So none of us should ever, ever dare to be a stumbling block to another. We have to be on guard, take charge of our behavior in every way. And in fact, verse 2, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. It's better to be wrapped around your neck a rope and a millstone, a stone that is used on top of another bigger stone in order to grind up wheat and other grains, to grind them up, to have one of those hung around your neck so heavy and that somebody throw you into the ocean, into the sea, and you go down to the very bottom. It's better for that to happen than for you to cause somebody else to sin. One of these little ones to stumble. So don't ever dare. Don't ever be brazen. Don't ever have the temerity to cause another person to sin. In fact, repent of that sin and be one with each other. Now, when he says these little ones, if we compare this passage to Matthew chapter 18, by these little ones, he's talking about those who believe in him, his disciples. He's not talking about infants or babies. He's not talking about that. He's talking about the people of God who are also called little children. If you read 1 John, John is fond of calling the believers little children, my little children, beloved children. So this is what Jesus means. These little ones to stumble. Do not let that happen. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.